Our staff is so helpful, and we need them desperately. We're grateful to them. I'm excited about this series out of Colossians. We are in a series, part two, filled, complete, whole. I want to just jump right into a quote. It's kind of a story quote. It comes from a book that I'm going to put on the screen for you so you know where it's from. Psychologist Madeline Levine has been counseling teenagers for over 25 years, but recently Levine had begun to see a new breed of unhappy teenagers, smart, successful, and privileged kids who feel utterly lost and empty. For Levine, one client in particular typified this kind of unhappy teenager. Late on a Friday afternoon, the last appointment of her week, Levine saw a 15-year-old girl who was bright, personable, highly pressured by her adoring but frequently preoccupied parents. The girl was also very angry. Levine quickly recognized the girl's cutter disguise, a long-sleeved t-shirt pulled halfway over her hand with an opening torn in the cuff of her thumb. Such t-shirts are used to hide self-mutilating behaviors, cutting with sharp instruments, piercing with safety pins, or burning with matches. When the young girl pulled back her sleeve, Levine was startled to find that the girl had used a razor to carve the following word onto her forearm, empty. Levine commented, I tried to imagine how intensely unhappy my young patient must have felt to cut her distress into her flesh. The most common thing I hear in my office from the kids is, I'm fake. The surface of their family life always looks good. The lawns are always perfectly manicured. The houses always look beautiful. But when you get to what's going on beneath it all, a terrible price is being paid. Now I'm going to add some words that come from the back of her, uh, the book flyleaf on the back. Emptiness at the price of perfectionism, disconnection, depression, anxiety disorders, and substance abuse. She claims that this is a new phenomenon in this upper socioeconomic sector that is surprising, but it's true that so many who have so much are feeling empty, angry, depressed, anxious, and don't know what to do. So, with that kind of problem out there, let's just first of all recognize it's not a teenage problem alone. We have a whole culture of people who with the affluence that we have and with the privilege that we have are still finding ourselves feeling completely empty and finding ourselves struggling with depression, struggling with anxiety, struggling with problems and trying to figure out what to do. If you've been feeling empty, I want to introduce you to the person who can fill you. He's my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And Paul did all he could to help a whole world know about him. And he wrote this letter to the Colossians, 62 AD approximately, just 32 years or so after Jesus was crucified as a political criminal, as a what? But as he predicted, he raised from the dead. Now, there were others that he, in his ministry, had raised from the dead. But Jesus will be called in the passage we're about to study, the firstborn among those who are raised. 
because he was the first to be raised never to die again. Every other person he raised from the dead during his ministry died again. And yet it's because of Jesus' victory over death, over sin, over our problems, which he voluntarily absorbed, that we're able to experience not only the resurrection that we look forward to, but a healing and a reconciliation. So we're going to jump into a highly theological passage of Scripture that uh, Paul puts together. It's probably the highest description of who Jesus is that you'll find in a compact paragraph that you'll find anywhere in the Bible, and we're going to be in Colossians 1. Before I read that passage, I'm going to just state point number one, and you get ready to write it down so that it will be prepared to read this passage. Point number one is, who he is made what he did possible. I've already described to you that he was crucified on the cross voluntarily. He was raised from the dead by God's plan, and he knew that was the joy that he was looking past the pain to, the joy set before him. And he did this so that we could be raised, that we could be saved, that we could be made whole because we're all messed up. This can only work if what is described of Jesus that we're about to read is true. If this is not who Jesus is, then this does not work. But it does work because this which we're about to read is who Jesus is. Colossians 1, we're going to pick up at verse 15, but a reminder, we left off last week at 14 where God uh, rescued us and brought us out of the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of his son, his son whom he loves. And now he's going to, uh, Paul's going to describe who this son is in great detail, and it's going to confuse our minds and blow our circuits to try to understand how this could be. But this is how Paul describes the son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The son is the image of the invisible God the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything we might have, that he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. That's a mouthful. And somebody was just commenting today about how, whoa, you're going to take seven weeks on seven chapters. I could take 22 weeks on this section alone. It is so theologically packed. I just arbitrarily picked 22. Give me a number. I'll fill it. Um, it's an amazing section. Now, the interesting thing is it's written in this classic Hebrew poetic form where there's this parallelistic structure that occurs in the Psalms that were often songs that were sung. And the, some of the scholars believe that this particular section 
could have been a song that had already been formed rather early, immediately after the resurrection, immediately after the preaching, where this, this is their hymn among uh, the Christian gathering, singing of the glory of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The deity of Jesus was not something that came hundreds of years later after legendary embellishments. It was instantaneous uh, in the preaching of the movement about this Messiah. And so, how do you deal with that? How could Jesus, the Son, be God, creator? When God is creator described in the Old Testament. Well, all of these different statements here are from the Old Testament, and Paul is attributing these statements about God and uh, the figure that was to come, the hopes that they were pinning their uh, salvation and deliverance upon. Now, these figures are going to be applied to Jesus. To make sense of this rather quickly, I'm relying again, and throughout the series we'll do this for your help, the Bible Project to, who will put things together for us visually. So on the screen for the next eight minutes is trying to make sense of God. Here we go. So I've got a question that's always bothered me. The Bible says there's one God, but in other parts of the Bible, God is three, Father, Son, and Spirit. How can it be both? Yeah, this is a question that has mystified people for thousands of years. And while we can't fully explain it, I think we can better understand what it is that we can't fully understand. <laughs> what do you mean? Well, think of it this way. Here's a two-dimensional plane. And then here's an object with three dimensions that's going to pass through the 2D plane. Okay, right. From this perspective, the 3D objects above and below the plane. So now it makes sense. But imagine you were a 2D person stuck on the 2D plane. What would you see? I don't know. What would I see? Well, it would look like this. Oh, yeah, okay. From this perspective, it looks impossible. It's one object, and then, then two objects, and then three. But in reality, they're all one, just not in a way you're capable of understanding. Now, let's take this whole thing as a visual analogy for how we experience God. The claim in the Bible is that God is transcendent, a divine being through whom we live and move and have our being. Or, as God says, I am. Okay, but I live here in this universe, so when God appears, it will make sense in some ways, but in other ways, it will break my categories. Exactly. This happens all the time when people encounter the God of the Bible. So let's look first at how this happens in the Hebrew Scriptures. Throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, God appears in complicated ways that don't quite fit our categories. One common way this happens is with God's attributes. So an attribute is a way to describe what something is like. For example, a soccer ball is round. Right. Or God is wise. Yeah, great. Let's take God's wisdom. So the book of Proverbs says that God created the world by his wisdom. But then there are also poems in the book of Proverbs that describe God's wisdom as a person, a co-worker through whom God architected the universe. So God's attribute becomes a separate character? Yeah. This also happens with God's glory, which sometimes appears as a human figure on a throne that's engulfed in fire. Or take God's word, which he can speak to people, but sometimes his word appears like a person. Wait, so God's attributes have become new little gods? No, no. The biblical authors believe there's only one all-powerful God. 
but they're comfortable talking about them as different characters. Yeah, this is part of the way that the biblical authors portray the one God's complex identity. They're God's attributes and also distinct from God. Distinct from God and also God. Yes. Once we learn to spot that way of talking about God's identity, you begin to see it all over the scriptures. In fact, you find it in the first sentences of the Bible that mention the Spirit of God. So the opening line of the Bible is pretty familiar. In the beginning, God created. But then keep reading. Who is it that we see within creation hovering over the waters? The Spirit of God. Yeah, so the Spirit refers to God's personal presence and energy that we can interact with here within creation. And so the Bible can refer to God's Spirit as distinct from God. Distinct from God, and also God. It's God's Spirit. And while this sounds strange from our point of view, this complexity is what the biblical authors are trying to get us to see. So we've looked at God's attributes and God's Spirit. Now let's make our last stop exploring God's complex identity in the Hebrew Scriptures with a character called the Son of Man. So in the Bible, there's only one God that people are to worship, which makes this story in the book of Daniel really surprising. Daniel has a dream about a human figure called the Son of Man, which means a member of humanity. And Daniel dreams about this human getting elevated on a cloud, up and then higher up. Up into God's space. Yes, and then this human sits at the right hand of God's heavenly throne, and all humanity worships this human alongside God. A human where I expect to see God. Yeah, this human is a part of God's identity. This vision is about the climactic hope of the whole biblical story. God and humanity become one so they can rule the world together as one. So the Son of Man is distinct from God and also God. Exactly. So think back over everything we've looked at. In the Hebrew Scriptures, God's identity is complex. And so when Jesus' followers encountered God as the Father, Son, and the Spirit, they already had categories for how these could all be the one God of the Bible. Okay, let's talk about that. Okay, so in the New Testament, we're introduced to Jesus of Nazareth. And he's human, but way more. His favorite title to call himself was the Son of Man. The figure in Daniel's vision. And the claim is that he is this complex God become human to unite other humans with God. Okay, so the Gospels portray Jesus as fully human. And also as Yahweh, the God of Israel. Jesus went around saying and doing things that only Yahweh can do, like forgiving people's sins or calming the chaotic waters. So they're saying Jesus is a human, distinct from God, and also God. Yeah, and that might sound crazy unless you've been reading the Hebrew Scriptures, which prepared you for it. And then check this out. Jesus' first followers, the apostles, talked about his identity using the language of God's attributes. They called Jesus the glory of God. Or the apostle Paul called Jesus the wisdom of God. Or John opens his gospel calling Jesus the word of God through whom the world was created. And then he says, the word was with God and was God. Okay, I get what they're doing and it hurts my brain. Totally. And if you want to spin your brain even more, consider this. Jesus, who's portrayed as God become human, would talk to God as a distinct person. And when he did, he called him Father. When Jesus talked about God, he wasn't referring to an abstract force or energy. He was talking about a personal being that you can relate to. There's a lot of personal images of God in the Bible. Ruler, creator, judge. But Jesus consistently referred to God as my father. 
Jesus experienced God as a source of infinite love. He said, the Father has loved me since before the creation of the world. Apparently, Jesus knew the Father as an eternally others-centered, life-giving being. Right, like in the story about Jesus' baptism, when the Father says from heaven, this is my son whom I love. And then keep reading in that story, the person who brings that message of love from the Father to the Son is the Spirit of God. So we've talked about God's spirit. Here within creation, it's through the spirit that we interact with the divine. Yeah, and the same was true for Jesus. Through the spirit, he experienced the Father's love. But it didn't stop there. Jesus promised that through him, the spirit would go out and share the Father's love with all humanity and with all creation. So it can look like these are three distinct gods, but in some way that transcends my view of reality, they're also one. Right. This is what later followers of Jesus called the Trinity. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are the one God of the Bible. I could see how they got there. But this isn't just a philosophy puzzle. To describe God as a triunity is to claim that the universe is held together by an eternal community of love. Which is something that I can't really understand. But the God of the Bible isn't a being that you understand. The point is to know and be known by this God so that we can participate in his love. Okay, so if that hurts your brain, which hurts mine too, uh, remember the last statement. Uh, the point of all of this isn't so that we can fully understand God. I don't believe our brains are capable of fully comprehending and understanding God. But to understand to the degree that we don't let the complexity of who he is become a barrier to being loved by him and to enter into an awe and a pursuit of him is what this is all about. So we need to hang on to that and pursue and get to know him and love him, even if he's beyond fully understanding for us right now, okay? So I'm going to just list off our Lord Jesus Christ described in uh, a few other statements that say the same thing that I just read, but maybe just hearing it twice and maybe with a little different wording, it'll help us a little bit. Our Lord Jesus Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. Our Lord Jesus Christ is the heir of all creation. They use the word firstborn. It's used in the sense of hierarchical rank of position. You compare verse 15 and verse 18 uh, for that firstborn rank. So there's a, if you compare the context, there was never a time when Jesus was not because he's with God from the beginning and before all of creation, before anything else is created, he is with God and through him things are created. So don't think of the firstborn as in then he came to be. Think of it as he's the son and heir of it all. He is the one who inherits. He's the preeminent supreme one. Our Lord Jesus Christ existed before anything was created. He claimed to be the self-existent I am in John chapter 8. You might want to read that. This is what God said that his name was to Moses at the burning bush, Exodus 3. Jesus claims that name for himself. Our Lord Jesus Christ is supreme over all creation. It was through Jesus, the Son, that God created everything, the realms and realities we can see, as well as the realms and realities that we cannot see. All powers and kingdoms are subservient to our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus existed before anything else existed. 
He holds all creation together. Jesus is the head of the church, which is his body. And so don't think of church in terms of buildings. The church has buildings. The church are people. We are his church, and he is the head, and we share one spirit with him because of what he accomplished. And so we get directives from him, and we share a life together, and through his spirit, he leads us. We become Jesus' hands and feet on earth in the body, the church. Jesus is the beginning and supreme over all who rise from the dead. Jesus is first and foremost in everything. It is through Jesus that God reconciled everything to himself. It is through Jesus that peace between heaven and earth is made, and this through Christ's blood shed on the cross. And that's just in one short song. Powerful, powerful section out of Colossians. He is God, God's son. Point number two. Jesus reveals God. Colossians 1.15, we already read it. It reads this way. The son is the image of the invisible God. So if you want to get to know God, we just kind of go, whoa, if you want to get to know God, you get to know Jesus, whom we can visualize. Jesus, whom we get to know in a sense that in the, the closest revelation, because he is the image of God in personal form. So we can get a sense of God. The best possible revelation of God is Jesus himself. And so if you want to get to know God, Get to know Jesus. More on this concept of the image of God in the next video, and it's about five minutes long. So if you lived in ancient Bible times, odds are you lived under the authority of a king. And many of these kings claimed that they were oh. gods, and they would even call themselves the image of God. Meaning they had authority to tell people what to do, order things to be made. Yeah, they got to define good and evil. And these kings would often make statues of themselves, which in Hebrew were called tselem, often translated as idol or image. But for Israel, they didn't view their kings as the God. In fact, they were never supposed to even make images of God. It's exactly right, and that was really unique for that time and culture. This is rooted, first of all, in Israel's belief that you can't reduce the creator God down to any one thing in creation. But there's another reason. People aren't to make images of God because God has already made images of himself. When did he do that? Well, let's go to page one of the Bible. And the first person we meet there is God. He's the one with authority over all creation. He speaks and creation obeys. And he defines what is good and not good. In other words, he alone is king. But then surprisingly, as the pinnacle of all of God's creative work, he makes humans. And he calls all of them the image of God. So he gives all humans the authority to rule. Exactly, that's what he goes on to say. He tells the humans to subdue the earth and to rule it. And so this task that once belonged only to elite kings is here in the Bible the task of every human being. This was a revolutionary statement in its day because all humans are being called to rule and to participate in the human project. So what does this mean? I mean, how are we all supposed to rule? So the picture we get in Genesis is gardening. Gardening? Yes. 
gardening. So they rule the earth by cultivating it, by harnessing all of the earth's raw potential and then making something more and new out of it. So growing food for each other. Yes, but that also includes growing families then, which become neighborhoods. And then they create communities where people are going to work and take care of each other and build businesses and cities that will expand to new places and so on. So ruling is really the day-to-day acts of our work and creativity. Yes, we take the world somewhere. This is humanity's divine and sacred task. Yeah, and this all sounds really nice. And humans have designed some pretty great things. But just as often we create things that cause a lot of suffering and a lot of injustice, so maybe we shouldn't actually be ruling. (laughs) Yeah, so the Bible addresses this. In Genesis, what happens is that God gives humans a choice about how they're going to rule. So are they going to use their authority for the benefit of others, which is God's definition of good, or are they going to turn away and define good and evil for themselves and use their authority for self-advantage? And in the story, they choose to define good and evil on their own terms. And so this is the Bible's depiction of the human condition. So sometimes we pull off amazingly good stuff, but just as often, despite our best intentions, we act selfishly and we create evil in the world. And so we're stuck as mediocre rulers making a mess of things. But that's not the end of the story. So the Bible goes on and it makes this claim that all of this was resolved when God bound himself to humanity through Jesus. And he showed us what it looks like to truly rule as a human. So what does it look like? Well, Jesus ruled by serving and by seeking the best for others, by putting himself underneath them and loving not just his friends, but also his enemies. And that's not a typical way to rule. And not only that, Jesus confronted the consequences of all of the evil and the death that we have created by our messed up ways of ruling. And he takes it. I mean, he lets it kill him. And so when the New Testament writers looked back to Jesus' resurrection, they see a whole new future opening up for all humanity. Jesus is a new way to be human. Yeah, that's why they called Jesus the image of God or the new human. And not only that, they also believe that Jesus' divine life and power is now available to heal and to transform us to become our life and power. And this sounds really nice, but what does it really look like? So practically, the Apostle Paul said it looks like people being filled by Jesus' own presence and spirit, filled with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and integrity and gentleness and self-control. He says this is the new humanity that God wants to create in us so that we become people in whom God's image is being restored, people who will move the human project forward. And that's actually how the story of the Bible ends. It's a renewed world where God is on his throne and his servants are all around him, but they're the ones ruling over this new world, taking it into new, uncharted territory with Jesus as their healer and their guide. So you can see why who he is made what he did possible. That was point number one. In point number two, Jesus reveals God. Point number three is Jesus reconciles us to God. We're going to pick up from verse 18 now in chapter 1 of Colossians. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Now, that's a t- part of the title of today. Um, we're 
filled, complete, whole because of the supremacy of Jesus. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile, there's the word from our point, through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So in everything, Jesus is to have supremacy. Another word for that is preeminence. And so I'm gonna ask a series of questions, and I'm not doing this to just make you squirm. I'm doing this to help us understand how this works for us. It makes me squirm as well because they're very pointed questions. The good news is how he takes care of this for us. So have you given him, Jesus, preeminence, the first place position in everything? Have you given him the first place position in your life? Have you given him the first place position in your marriage? Have you given him the first place position in your work? Have you given him the first place position in your time? Have you given him the first place position in your finances? Have you given him the first place position in your love? The first place position in your relationships? It is because of who he is that this is the only rational thing to do. And yet we're constantly doing what's irrational, are we not? Where he doesn't get our recognition that he deserves first place position in everything we do, that it all honors him. So it sounds like bad news, but what we just read is the gospel, and gospel means good news, and good news is tucked away right in what we just read with the word reconcile, reconcile to himself. The word reconciled, verse 20, means to restore from the condition of hostility back to a position of peace with God, to experience his love, acceptance, and forgiveness. So repent and Jesus restores to you a reconciled relationship where from hostility where you are not having the correct order and view of Jesus and Jesus is supreme in your life, he brings that back together where the correct order is there where he is acknowledged as supreme. How does that take place? It takes place when you simply say, Lord, Forgive me, I repent. I have not placed you as first in my marriage, first in my finances, first in my time. I keep making it about me and not you. And repent, the moment you repent, grace just floods in and where there's a hostility and a distance between you and God because of Jesus and his shed blood on the cross, that grace floods in and brings you back into reconciled relationship with our God. This is good news. And this good news is only possible because Jesus is the Son of God who voluntarily shed his blood on the cross as a payment, the payment we owe, for the wages of sin is death. And Jesus pays the price for us so that we can be reconciled back to God 
move out of the hostile position against God, the hostility coming against our sin and the hostility coming against our, from our side, rebellion is removed. And it's removed by who Jesus is and what he has done. A couple of quotes to finish. Christ sends none away empty except those who are full of themselves. Christ fills those who are empty and look to him to be filled. If you're full of yourself and you do not repent, you actually get what you want. Just yourself. But if you feel empty and you cry out to him to fill you with himself, such a repentance is exactly what is necessary for the grace to just flood into your life. And then there's this ongoing relationship of worship that I'm going to just put in some simple phrases. I'll put it on the screen for you. So look to him. Keep the sun in your eyes. As a kid, I was always told, don't stare at the sun, S-U-N. Here we're supposed to stare at the sun, S-O-N. Keep the sun in your eyes. Look to Jesus in every way, in every day, and all the way. That as you keep doing that, it's going to look like ongoing uh, worship, an ongoing praise, an ongoing recognition of the bigness of who he is. And in that recognition, the grace just floods into the emptiness and fills you with his very being to make you full of the spirit, complete in him, and put back together so that you can be whole. Now, as a person who's trying to practice this the best I know how, it really looks like moving from wherever I am to where God wants me to be, and there's a daily relationship involved in steps and repentance and worship and steps and repentance and worship. And as I move from glory to glory to glory, that sense of completeness, that sense of wholeness just grows and grows and grows, but it doesn't ever get fully completed to where I don't sin until I will see Jesus face to face at his return or when I go to be with him at my death. And at that point, I will reflect his image perfectly. But meanwhile, celebrate Jesus. Enjoy this life. Enjoy what he's given you in the kingdom in him where you can experience a wholeness and a completeness and a filling that you won't want to trade for anything. But you have to trade some things to get there. Repent and say no to the things you're repenting to and let those drop as he gives you something so much better. You will not want to be full of yourself. You will want to be empty of yourself and full of Jesus. So here's to that. I encourage you to grab uh, one of these talk it over sheets as a help to you. It'd be great to study it on your own and then get together with somebody and go through these questions as you dig deeper in a very, very deep subject of what this looks like. I've given you a ton of scriptures to go on for this week. So I hope you'll take that uh, challenge and, and dive 
further. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we worship you, we thank you, we love you, we adore you. It's uh, with recognition that you are worthy of all praise, honor, and glory. So you're worthy of our praise, you're worthy of our soul's attention, and so we look to you and keep looking to you, and we repent of our smallness, our wickedness, and we actually confess the reality. You are the only one that can help us, and we need your help. And so we ask that you'll be our Savior, our Lord, our Master, and fill us with your Spirit, even as you've promised. And help us to take these steps in a daily, very real, relational way. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. See you next week.